All right. So uh, this morning, I'm going to conclude my series I've called Your New Normal. We're talking about kind of developing normal Jesus habits, which will make our lives look abnormal if we live them, but much, much better. And we've been looking at some scriptures that give us guidance about living out a new normal that honors God and that is links up well with the lifestyle that Jesus came to bring. Uh, this morning, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to review some passages that that speak of an authentic approach to following Jesus versus an inauthentic approach to following Jesus. And to, to get that started, I would like for you to take a look at the curious case of Mark Landis. He may be the most successful art forger in American history, painting credible copies of great works of art and convincing museums across the country they're real. They didn't believe me. I found 46 museums in 20 states with more than 100 pieces that he's offered up to these institutions. Mark Landis, that's him putting on a priest's collar, part of the elaborate ruse that allowed him to fool museums into thinking he was just an eccentric philanthropist. Landis got away with it for nearly 30 years. His exploits and the story of how he was exposed all documented in the film Art and Craft. Landis created his fake masterpieces. I just use colored pencils, you know, because I can't tell. So he could give them away. His con, one part forgery, the other impersonation. He posed as a philanthropist in order to donate fake painting. I, I believe it'll, it'll, it'll look well. And oh, you know I'd it. Like you. Is that a form, or early form of color it's printing of some sort? Or? In the film, you guys document at least two occasions that I could count where he's actually going to the museum to give them a, a painting. So you were kind of complicit in this, in a way, right? I think how we approached it is we're observational documentarians, sort of like fly on the wall, and so we didn't want to interact in Mark's life in a way that would change his life in any way. What did you tell the museums that you were doing? For the most part, they, they had already spoken with Mark because they met him as, a, as the philanthropist, you know, they had met him as the priest. So we told them we were making this movie about his career. So-and-so philanthropist. I mean, there's an ethical question there, isn't there? Did you struggle with it? It is uncomfortable to be filming something unfolding when you know something that other people don't know. The nature of documentary is to document reality as, as it unfolds. Landis is more like Martha Stewart. He shops for his art supplies at the Hobby Lobby. Is there a trick? You have to pick somebody that's super obscure, but also... Oh, no, no, no. No, 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 no. First of all, what's most important is to find something that's not too hard to do. The thing is, Landis never charged any of the museums a penny. He just tried to give them the works of art. And for that reason, what he did is not a crime. Apparently, a forgery is only a forgery if you try and sell it. So technically, these paintings are copies, nothing illegal. Isn't that interesting? Um, in the longer version, it talks about how he just fell in love with uh, feeling generous, like he didn't have anything of real value to give. Uh, and so he, could, he loved the, the interaction where a person felt like they were getting something. So, so I, you know, I just, just fascinated, and I certainly don't recommend anyone go out and try that. Um, that was not a, hey, look at this guy kind of a thing. But, it, I, you know, I, I read that story and I was like, wow, this guy 
loves to be generous, and so he fakes paintings and goes around to give them away, doesn't make any money off of it, just, uh, and I, you know, it's just, it's interesting when you think about authentic, inauthentic. Like, I don't know that there's any real harm in fake art. You and I are going to um, take it in like we would any painting and be moved like we would by any painting. Um, But there are certainly ways that you could be inauthentic and fake things that could have more, uh, more consequence to it. Like, for instance, if you were to fake being a police officer or a doctor, um, there could be some real problems. And as some of you have, have experienced and as we know of, um, inauthentic expressions of faith can be a huge problem, not only for the person who's being the fake, but also... Uh, for those of you or anyone who may observe an inauthentic follower of Jesus, and, and the problem is then <clears throat> that the God of the inauthentic follower um, is sort of on display. So some of you maybe have had some very negative uh, uh, instances or encounters with inauthentic followers of Jesus and, I mean, I know people, I have friends that they'll never, um, they'll, they'll never set foot in a church or, or consider faith in Jesus because of things that others have done to them that they've associated with Jesus that actually were very inauthentic, uh, uh, not the real thing, uh, expressions of faith. They've seen Christianity lived out poorly or inauthentically, and it has tremendous negative impact in the world, and I think you, you know what I'm talking about. So I have an example of, uh, of what an inauthentic uh, expression of faith could do. Now, in the book of Acts, the book of Acts is, um, is a New Testament book, and it, it's filled with stories of how the very first Christians, first in the Jesus movement, expressed their faith. And one of the common themes, one of the central themes, is the, the, the very real danger of fake Christianity, of fake Christians, of Christians who wanted the benefits of associating with Jesus, but they were not properly living out their faith. And so I have one of the more interesting um, stories. Again, there are several in the book of Acts. This is one of the more interesting ones. This is um, in uh, Acts chapter 19. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits. So these are, these are Jewish exorcists, okay? So think like, you know, the exorcist movie. They tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Why did they do that? Well, they've, they've seen Jesus and his disciples have success. So they, they take the formula, the verbal formula, okay? And they would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you, come out. Start saying this in their exorcisms. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Now one day, an evil spirit answered them. So he answers back. Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? That would be scarier than like the real exorcist movie. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Isn't that a crazy story? Like, of all the stories of the ancient church, that's one of the ones that made it 
in the book of Acts. And I think one of the reasons that made it is because there was a strong theme that when Luke was writing, if he wanted to show there are real consequences for inauthentically trying to connect yourself with this Jesus movement, like it's something that is not to be messed with. Now, um, these days, I think there are a lot of inauthentic Christians, and I'm certainly not above inauthentically living out my faith any given place, any given time, in line at the store, on the ball field, wherever. But typically the results don't, you know, result in public nudity and failed exorcisms. Uh, The results are more relational these days in that people see what doesn't connect with Jesus, and a lot of times they might not even realize that doesn't connect with Jesus. Like, that's opposite Jesus. And they get this wrong idea of who Jesus is, and they reject the whole thing. And that's a huge price to be paid. And then we're also going to see that our souls pay a huge price when we um, inauthentically follow Jesus. So let's, uh, let's take a few minutes. I want to walk through, like I said, yeah, you know, Failed exorcisms is typically not the most manifest uh, occasions of inauthentic faith. I want to take a look at a few things that we can see in society and certainly at times see in our own lives uh, that represent common expressions of inauthentic faith in Jesus these days. So let me start with uh, this first one. Misses the mark when, when doctrine trumps love. When, like, doctrine or theology is placed above people, and maybe you can even think of some, some instances right away that jump out where that guy or that lady loved doctrine and, and, um, and theology uh, more than she loved people. So um, I think that there's a certain personality that... Like, we all love being right. You know, I like being right. If not, I'd be in trouble because I'm right most of the time. Um, That's real-time on-the-spot comedy right there. That's not in the notes. (laughs) Um, There's a certain personality that just loves being right more than most. And what represents a more powerful trump card than being right about God. Like when you're right about God, that's pretty right. And so you can lose sight of what's more important. So let me look at, this is, this is 1 Corinthians 13. It's called the love chapter of the Bible. It's read at a lot of weddings. And Paul says that if, if, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So Paul says we can understand how it all works. Our theology can be on point. We can be right about all things God. But if we don't love people in real ways, it's useless. So when you see someone or when we ourselves start to put theology what is to be believed about what is to be believed about God above the actual people who are or are not believing 
That's an inauthentic expression of faith. And Paul says it's, it's, it's actually useless. Now, let me point you to a solid, um, um, like this is, this is a real life moment of the disciples. So Paul points out kind of theoretical, if you understand all theology and don't love people, like, like a, a, a theoretical, a hypothetical, I should say. Here's a real-time occurrence, okay? James and John and Peter, James and John are a part of this particular problem. Uh, they were up on this mountain with Jesus in what's called the transfiguration. That means Jesus was transfigured. That means um, he became the God of the universe like in front of them. Like he went from being, uh, you know, human contained, sweaty, smelly, cracked feet and dirty sandals to being the cosmic God of the universe. Like at that moment, James and John, their theology as much as we could as human beings was, was spot on. They saw God as Jesus was transfigured. And, and then they come down the mountain, and here's what we see. This is, this is uh, Luke 9, uh, 54. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, well, let me, I, I guess I, I started too late there. Um, they come down the mountain, and, and they're in this region that rejects Jesus. They don't want Jesus to leave. They, they don't want Jesus there. They want Jesus to leave. So they have a moment of perfect theology, as perfect as humans can be, and they see a moment where these people are rejecting Jesus. And they, they get all triggered. So here we go. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they had a moment of perfect theology. They saw a moment of bad theology. And they wanted to nuke them. Like they wanted them wiped off the planet. Like, you know, parking lot. And Jesus rebuked them for that. So we just see this moment where, where theology was placed above people. Now, I would say that one of the greater expressions of that these days is some of the things I hear uh, toward people who, who are of other faiths. Um, in casual conversation, whatever, like I'll know where a person stands in, the, in their faith and they are a professing Christian and they'll, they'll go a little too far in talking about Muslims or Hindus or whatever. Okay, so, so I think that, that those are moments when we are placing uh, theology above people, and that's a very dangerous uh, place to be because it's not authentic to the kinds of things. Like, Jesus doesn't ask that of you. Okay? Let's look at another one. Uh, this is a major theme in the gospel. There was a, a group of people called the Pharisees, uh, religious leaders of the day, and they personified uh, putting rules above people. So there's putting doctrine above people, and then, there's, and then there's putting rules above people, like doing the right thing is all that matters. Just, just be obedient to the rules, and that's all that matters. And, and what we're going to see is that that's not authentic. You have to transcend. You have to rise above just... Just do it, because you can do all the right things, but miss the mark entirely, and that's an inauthentic expression of faith. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says this, if I give to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, 
but I do not have love, I gain nothing. And so the idea here is a kind of a, um, like a, a, a poor treatment of the body, whether it be by fasting or by giving everything away, or you know, you're living like a, the, the proverbial monk. Okay, you're, 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 you're following all the rules, you're living the extreme lifestyle, but you don't really love people. You're missing the mark entirely. So what, in theory, you could give everything away for the wrong reasons, just like to get things right, to be more right. You could give everything away, and you could follow all the rules and not do any of the bad stuff and only do all the good stuff, but miss the mark entirely because you don't have love for people. Now, we build Polaris around Isaiah 58, passage in the Old Testament. So I'm going to read it to you and listen to what this what we shape Polaris around and what Isaiah projects as authentic faith. This is more God expressing frustration with an inauthentic faith. So here we go. The people say, why have we fasted? So what have they done? They've gone without food. They've gone without, they've given up food. They've made great sacrifices to follow the rules. Why have we fasted and you have not seen it, God? Why have we humbled ourselves, God, and you have not noticed So the people are talking to God and they're saying, God, we've gone without food and we've done all sorts of pious things. We've prayed and followed the rules. So why aren't you answering our prayer? God says, yet on your day of fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. So God says, you're obeying the piety rules But you're ignoring the rules about caring for people, like really caring for people. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? This is God saying only a day for people to humble themselves. It is only for bowing one's head like a reed and lying in sackcloth and ashes. Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable? So God kind of goes Monty Python here and he's like, what's with all the groveling? Do you think the the groveling, that I'm impressed by groveling? I'm not impressed by your misery. And then he says, is this not the kind of fasting that I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Now with the yoke, think of two oxen like bound together. He's talking about setting people free. Setting the oppressed free. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them? And not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will appear quickly. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear God. So God says, your rear guard. God says, it's not about just following the rules and going through the motions of pious things. That's not an authentic expression of faith. Because you're doing these things and you're not loving people, you're not helping people, you're not serving people, you're not actually doing anything to help anybody in need. So it's pretty useless. So one inauthentic expression had to do with I got all the knowledge about God right, but I don't really care about people. The other one is I follow all the rules, but I don't really care about people. It's a common denominator there. If you want to be authentic in your faith, you have to care about people. Now let me look at one more 
Um, and this is, this is like a bit of a stretch, and it's more of a pet peeve, but it's a chance for me to talk about it a little bit, okay? Let me read to you from James 2. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? So what I think James, one of, the, one of the issues that James is talking about here is there's a kind of churchiness. You could call it Christianese or whatever. There's a language, and, and sometimes people get really good at a churchy language. Man, they sound spiritual. Be warm and well-filled. You're in my thoughts and prayers. Whatever, whatever. And it's not that those are bad things. But the point is, that's no substitute for getting real stuff done for people. Now, Polaris, and some of you have seen this, and sometimes it takes people a while to detox. Um, we're not the most churchy church in the city. And, and churchy language is not like a part of our culture. It doesn't mean that you, you know, if you talk churchy, you, you're fine here. But, but I think what James is doing, because there's, there's a, there, are, there are segments, uh, and I'm not above any of this, I'm really not. But I know there are groups of Christians who sound really spiritual. Like they pray really good in public, and they have this language, and it sounds so churchy. But there's nothing past that. And so let me move here to, to like real expression of faith, authentic expression of faith. And I can't stress this enough. Listen, I am on any given day, like, like it, it sounds judgy, and it is, but understand that I'm judging myself when I'm, when I'm sorting all this out because I'm certainly not above any of this behavior, okay? Maybe the churchy language thing. But other than that, I'm not above any of this behavior. All right. I'm going to pick back up in Matthew 25. We were here last week. This is judgment day. Okay? This is judge Jesus here. You only judge more efficient than judge Judy. But he doesn't make as much money as her. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, Son of Man is Jesus' favorite nickname for himself, and the Son of Man is also an Old Testament um, uh, term for like God handing over the kingdom to one like the Son of Man. So this is like the moment when Jesus takes his throne, okay? When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people uh, one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? 
When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now this is a captivating, provocative passage because Jesus gets his theology wrong. Like, he should have said, well, you prayed the right prayer and accepted me as your Lord and Savior and believed the right things about me and so come on in. But he doesn't say that. He says, come on in. You cared for people in need and in doing so, you actually cared for me. Because these people don't even know what they did right. Like they're questioning Jesus on Judgment Day, which I don't recommend. Like just get in. But they don't know what they did right. And Jesus said, when you cared for the least of these, you cared for me. Somehow, people that didn't even know what they were doing authentically expressed their faith in Jesus by caring for the least of these. Now, don't hear me. I mean, I'm certainly not, and I don't think Jesus would either, writing off faith and believing the right things and confessing and all that stuff. But notice that in this instance, for Jesus, it's all about what did you actually do for people in need? So how do we express our faith in Jesus accurately? We find people going through real problems, and we do things to help them. We help cancer patients with their meals and housework. We help the city mission as they care for the homeless. We help love pure as they meet the overwhelming needs of children in poverty in Costa Rica. We help the single mom on your street. You befriend the socially awkward person at work. This is a major theme in the Bible. God says time and again, don't misrepresent me. You love people above all other forms of religiosity. Now, let me close with with James. This is one of the more famous passages as he defines religion. Because I think if you were to ask a lot of people to define religion, it would have a lot more to do with um, believing things. And here's what James says. Religion that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted from the world. Now, most people associate being religious as living a certain standard, like living to a certain standard of purity, but it's more than about, it's, it's more than just avoiding sin. It's about actually doing Things for people in need, the orphans, the widows, the least of these. That's what James says is true religion. So if you want to have an authentic faith, and this world needs to see people authentically following Jesus, it has to involve doing real things that care for people who are really in need. So keep your eyes open and be ready to respond when you see a need. And in that need, according to Jesus, you're actually helping the Christ himself. And that's how we authentically live out our faith. So let's pray, and then we're going to close with this. I'd love for you to just contemplate during this song uh, what you've heard. And, and, and maybe think through or invite God to, um, to point out to you some people in your world.
that could use you authentically living out your faith. Father, uh, what an incredible definition of religion. What a, like, I, I'm, I'm excited that we get to serve a God who is primarily concerned about how we treat our fellow humans. Um, that's just an incredible thought, that that's the humanity that you uh, are, are, are moving us toward. And so I pray during this last song, uh, if you would point out to us, God, uh, real people in our lives that we can reach out to and help, and by doing so, uh, serve you in the process. In Jesus' name, amen.